Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. Today, we'll be hearing the story of the United Belgian States, which was the very first Belgian state to ever exist. The year was 1765, and Joseph II had just been crowned Holy Roman Emperor, which was what medieval Germany was called, for those of you unfamiliar with the world's most confusing empire. Joseph took the throne right smack dab in the middle of the Enlightenment in Europe, which meant he had a lot of ideas as to how things should change in his empire. Oh, and this is important to know, his empire was a lot more than just the Holy Roman Empire. Joseph's full title would have gone something like this. Joseph, by the grace of God, Emperor of the Romans, forever august, King of Hungary, Croatia, Bohemia, Galicia, and Lodomeria, Archduke of Austria, Duke of Brabant, Limburg, Lothier, Luxembourg, and Milan, Count of Hainaut, Flanders, and Namur. So yeah, as I said, Joseph was planning on making some changes to his empire, and today we're going to be focusing on the Brabant part of said empire. Joseph swiftly implemented his changes, which centralized political, judicial, and administrative power under the crown, and didn't bother to ask his people what they thought of it at all. Of course, he didn't have to put it forth to the people, he was emperor after all, but emperors usually at least pretended to consult the will of the people before making sweeping changes. Not Joseph, though. Joseph was a modern man, and that meant centralization was his goal. In 1781, Joseph took a little tour of his northwestern territories, known as the Austrian Netherlands, but geographically similar to modern Belgium, and decided that the region was rife with outdated institutions that would do nothing but slow down his centralist rule of the territory. But here's the problem with that. The Austrian Netherlands were not directly ruled by the emperor like some of the other territories within the empire. Instead, they were ruled by the governor-general, who did happen to be the emperor's sister, Maria Christina, but the people of the region were very attached to their independence from direct imperial rule. In fact, already the Flemish dialect of the Dutch language was being pushed as a point of pride and the basis for a Flemish national identity. So, when Joseph went out and started dismantling local institutions in favor of raking more and more power into his own hands, the people of the Austrian Netherlands were immediately upset. Instead of uniting power under his authority, the emperor had just united the people of the Austrian Netherlands against his authority. For instance, Joseph abolished the special privileges of the Catholic Church because their allegiance to the Pope undermined his own authority. Unfortunately, the Catholics were the overwhelming majority in the region, so all this did was make most people mad at him. He also removed tariffs on the grain trade, which was meant to undermine the power of the trade guilds that profited from them, but all that did was cause an economic recession that nobody enjoyed. And finally, Joseph implemented his coup de grace. Two decrees that first began to tear down the old feudal administration of the region, and then sought to unify the whole of the territory under a single judicial system. So now Emperor Joseph had successfully ticked off the Catholics, aka most people in general, the merchant classes, the rich people, and the old feudal nobility of the region, which were the quote-unquote legitimate people. 
and as an added bonus, many of the very few people in support of Enlightenment ideals, like Joseph's, declared that his reforms did not go far enough, so they weren't happy either. The first signs of revolt began showing themselves pretty quickly. Local media put out issues showing how outrageous they thought the changes were, small-scale riots broke out and had to be put down by local forces, and the old court system that had just been dismantled began to take legal action as best they could. By early 1787, a wave of riots had swept across the territory, which caught the governor-general off guard, and when her own imperial forces weren't enough to stop it, she relied on local militias to put an end to the violence. Unfortunately for her, militias are made up of the people, and the people that make up militias have political opinions too. Slowly but surely, members of the imperial administration began hearing a very haunting word float around the militiamen. Patriot. Scared for the security of the imperial system in the Austrian Netherlands, Governor-General Maria Christina suspended all reforms in the region without her brother's approval, and then made a huge mistake. She invited all those who opposed the changes to speak their minds in a system of petitions. When the people realized they could now speak their minds freely, they didn't think twice. As people went public with their grievances, more and more of their fellow countrymen realized that they too were pretty ticked off. So the opposition movement grew and grew, but this time in the open air. When Joseph learned of what was going on in his territory, he was shocked. Knowing full well he couldn't just ignore this issue, he announced that he would repeal his administrative and judicial reforms in the region, but the religious ones were staying. By doing this, the emperor hoped he could soften the opposition enough that they would be easily crushed, but there was a problem with his solution. Sure, a couple of old judges and nobles were happy that their old system of government was back, but the Catholics still didn't have their old privileges back, and, as you know, most people were Catholics. Plus, the Catholic Church was rich beyond imagining, so papal authorities continued to fund and foment the rebellion. So the unrest continued until people hit the government where it really hurt. They stopped paying their taxes. By 1789, Joseph's Dutch ministers were in a panic, and they advised him that the only way he could ever get his plans through now was to just brute force it. Thus, the joyous entry of 1356, which was like the local Bill of Rights, was made void, and the administrative units of the region were once again dismantled. By now, self-exiled leaders of the growing rebellion had set up a base just over the border of the Dutch Republic, outside of Joseph's imperial domain. More and more people flocked to this base of operations until a small army had begun to form. Meanwhile, within the imperial borders, a secret revolutionary society called Pro Aris et Focus had formed that was actively distributing weapons to their sympathizers in preparations for a full-scale revolution. This society was funded by none other than the Catholic clergy, who still didn't have their old privileges back. In the spring of 1789, a little thing called the French Revolution broke out in the country next door, which inspired the two rebel camps, the one in exile and the secret society, so they came together to talk timing. Jean-André van der Mersch, a veteran commander of many wars, was appointed as their own commander, 
and their revolution was scheduled for October of 1789. On October 24th, Vandermersch's army of almost 3,000 men crossed the border into the Austrian Netherlands, and what would come to be known as the Brabant Revolution was officially on. Within three days, the rebels were locked in combat with imperial forces in the town of Turnhout, and though they were outnumbered and outclassed, the battle saw a victory for the Patriots. This was extremely embarrassing for Joseph, made worse by the fact that many of the defeated Austrian Dutchmen switched sides and joined their fellow countrymen in arms. Now that the rebellion had proof of concept and everyone was riding the high of victory, Vandermersch moved his men quickly through Flanders to the major city of Ghent, which fell by mid-November. Five days later, the revolution had already reached Mons, a major city in the southern half of the territory. These two major losses saw Joseph's army retreat into Luxembourg, which was easily defensible, leaving the rest of the Austrian Netherlands in the hands of the Patriots. The rebels now held a huge chunk of territory, and they needed to figure out what to do with it fast before the instability of a newborn nation set in and brought them all to ruin. First, they declared the unity of Flanders and Brabant as a single entity, though no one was sure what that entity was exactly. The rebels began to draft a constitution in mid-December and declared their independence later that month, but nothing official had been set in stone yet. By the time January rolled around, the Patriots summoned the States General, a very old institution comprised of various political and social classes, to help them decide what they should do with their new land. It may seem strange to you that so much chit-chat was going on, but keep in mind the times we're talking about. The American Revolution had only ended a few years ago, and neighboring France was actively undergoing their own revolution. Though the Republicans had won in America and looked to be winning in France, that didn't mean the winds would always blow that way. After all, the world's most powerful countries, the UK, Spain, Prussia, etc., were all still monarchies. Nonetheless, it seemed like these patriots quite liked the American format, because on January 11, 1790, 11 provinces of the Austrian Netherlands signed the Treaty of Union, which created the United Belgian States as a confederal state much like the U.S. had once been. Unfortunately, also like the United States of America, the United Belgian States almost immediately split down the middle politically. The Vonkists, named after their leader Jan Franz Vonk, supported the idea of popular sovereignty, or the rule of the people, while the creatively named aristocrats believed in maintaining the powers of the clergy and nobles. The middle classes supported the Vonkists, while the upper and lower classes stood behind the aristocrats. That may sound strange, but it makes sense if you think about what everyone's goals were. The middle classes had some agency in the world, and they sought to expand their powers, while the upper classes wanted to preserve what they had, and the pious lower classes wanted a return to form where the Catholic Church was supreme. Obviously, these two parties had some differing opinions as to how the United Belgian States should operate as a political entity, and unfortunately, their constitution did not outline a political solution to this division. As the winter of 1790 turned to spring, 
Tensions between the two sides began heating up until the simmer broke into a boil and a mob of aristocrats chased the Vonkists out of Brussels, their capital. As spring turned into summer, the clergy of Belgium began rallying the lowest classes into their own sort of army, which was meant to demonstrate to the Vonkists that the liberal ideals of the Enlightenment had no place in the United States of Belgium. Knowing they had the support of the people, aristocrat leaders mimicked the French Revolution by beginning their own reign of terror, which saw known or suspected Vonkists rounded up and imprisoned, including none other than van der Mersch, the hero general of their own revolution. As those Vonkists who had entered exile tried and failed to gather support for their cause, they slowly came to realize that they now had more in common with the old imperial government than they did with their own fellow Belgians. Thankfully for the Vonkists, Emperor Joseph was now dead, and his brother Leopold was in charge. Intent on bringing Belgium back into the imperial fold, Leopold sent his armies into Belgium in mid-October, and they had wholly subdued the region of Namur by the 24th of that month. Namur had been one of the original 11 signatories of the Treaty of Union, so this was a huge blow to the already fractured United Belgian states. By the 26th, Leopold had also captured West Flanders, which officially landlocked baby Belgium, trapping them between the annoyed Dutch in the north, the unstable French to the south, and the outwardly hostile Austrians everywhere else. It should come as no surprise then that on December 2nd, 1790, Brussels had fallen and the United States of Belgium, or the United Belgian States, were no more. So why has this country been forgotten? With a lifespan of January 11th to December 2nd, 1790, which is 325 days, the United Belgian states came remarkably close to surviving a full calendar year, so it's surprising we don't hear more about it. Of course, they might talk about it in Belgian history classes, but I'm not Belgian, so I wouldn't know. Either way, I think the answer lies with one man who's been lurking in the shadows of our story this whole time. I've mentioned France, I've mentioned the Holy Roman Empire, and I've mentioned the French Revolution, but let me put them all together for you in one single thought. On December 2nd of 1804, Napoleon Bonaparte seized the reins of the French Revolution, crowned himself emperor, and then proceeded to launch a series of conquests from France that saw the Holy Roman Empire dissolved and the whole of Western Europe conquered. Obviously, those events wouldn't happen for more than a decade after the fall of the United Belgian States, but the point I'm trying to make is that the massive importance of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic era that followed tend to swallow up the rest of the history of the time. So, unfortunately, like we've seen so many other times, the United Belgian states were just a victim of their own time. That's all I've got for you today, folks. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. And if you enjoyed, feel free to check me out on Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofforgottenlands. I run a whole second podcast series over there, which has about 20 episodes now, and I talk about the birth of every country that currently exists on the world stage. So thanks if you do that, and if not, I hope to see you again next week.